Welcome to Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and as a Mito patient myself, I appreciate you and the community you've helped us to build. This podcast honors the triumphs and struggles of patients and families affected by this disease and celebrates the work being done by doctors and researchers every day to make it a safer world for our people. We are a support group and a podcast focusing on all things related to mitochondrial disease. Welcome to another episode of Energy in Action. We welcome Elizabeth Reynolds today, who is the mother of a wonderful boy, and she's going to tell us about her her son and her incredible family and the foundation she has developed, and the world needs more people like Elizabeth Reynolds. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So let's get into it. Tell me you know, about your family and how that brought you to mitoaction, mitochondrial disease Tell me kind of your connection with all of this. Yeah. So I think that, you know, looking back and looking prior to even before we had children, we, I did not know what mitochondrial disease was, Um, but we had a pretty quick tutorial after our son, William was born. He was born in June of 2015 and pretty much immediately, you know, our doctors knew that something was wrong. He was incredibly anemic and um, had low oxygen when he was born. He went to the NICU, immediately started needing transfusions. After a few weeks in the NICU, we were able to go home, hoping that, you know, it was maybe an infection or something just had gone wrong, but now we were in the clear. But that was pretty quickly not the case. He continued to become anemic, continued to need transfusions. And so, um, you know, our first introduction to Pearson syndrome and mitochondrial disease was when our son's doctor told us that he had a diagnosis called Pearson syndrome. And, you know, when you Google it, you find out that it's a mitochondrial disease, but we still had very, you know, little understanding about what that meant for our family and what that meant for William. Right. Hearing something like Pearson syndrome isn't like hearing, you know, cancer or something that, you know, one is already familiar with or your contemporaries are familiar with. So what kind of happened from there once you got the diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's funny you say cancer because when we were trying to figure out what was going on, why he was continued to be anemic, one of the things on the table was leukemia. And that to us seemed like worst case. It seemed like the worst thing that could be told to a parent of a two month old, um, you know, that your son might have leukemia. But ultimately, we realized that probably leukemia would have been a preferable diagnosis because there's a treatment for leukemia and you can, you know, do something once you find out that you have that diagnosis. But, you know, after he had his bone marrow biopsy and aspirate, um, we realized that he had something called green sideroblast, which is ultimately why the hematologist sent off his genetic testing for Pearson syndrome. And, you know, William was at a really great medical center. And I think that that is why he had his diagnosis when he was two months old, which is early in terms of mitochondrial disease. It's early in terms of Pearson syndrome, which, um, you know, we can talk about the rarity, but there's according to, you know, when you Google it, it says that there's fewer than 100 cases of Pearson syndrome. And so to have that diagnosis when he was only two months old was really ultimately beneficial to him because it helped us at least understand what we were dealing with and what we needed to do next. That's incredible. I mean, I feel I talk to a lot of people who have a diagnosis of that for themselves or within their family, and it seems like the diagnosis can take more than a year or a few years. And fortunately, you were able to go down the correct path for what your son was experiencing at very quickly. Yeah. Looking back on that time of being new parents, he was our first son. It felt like a diagnostic odyssey. It felt like we were like, 
you know, really trying to figure out. He was going to multiple doctors. He was seeing his pediatrician, his hematologist. But compared to now having spoken with many other families for Pearson syndrome, but also across just rare diseases generally, um, the fact that it wasn't a multi-year diagnostic odyssey with multiple, you know, specialists was kind of amazing. So I think that, you know, of, of the children with Pearson syndrome, he had one of the earliest and quickest diagnoses. And I think, again, that was completely because of his kind of expert team where we were at the time. So when you say there's fewer than 100 cases, is that documented ever or is that living right now? So that is, you know, if you Google it, that is what the prevalence data shows. But having, you know, started this foundation, started the registry, we know that that is an underreporting of the number of children with Pearson syndrome. We have over 60 children in our registry right now that have Pearson syndrome, and almost all of them have been born in the last 20 years. And so, and Pearson syndrome was discovered in the 60s. So we know that there's more than 100 kids. We know that there's kids that are either being misdiagnosed or um, undiagnosed. And I think that that's, you know, it's it's certainly an orphan disease. It's sort of certainly ultra rare, but it's not quite as rare as only 100 cases. Okay. So we're going to learn about the registry in a little bit. So I think our listeners are going to find it fascinating and all the work that you're doing in that. So we'll get there in a minute. So is William your only son? William is not our only son. He's the oldest of our three children. We have a five-year-old. He has a five-year-old brother and a two-year-old sister who are, you know, I think it's a challenge for people when they have a child with a rare disease. But I think that of the people who have also had siblings, you know, I think that that's a wonderful, amazing relationship that William is able to have with his brother and sister. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they enhance each other's lives in ways that many other children can't. The emotional maturity they'll develop and the empathy and the, the care that they're just going to show from a very early age is probably beautiful to see. You know, I think that the relationship with his siblings is one of the the best things that William has going right now. I think that, and it's pretty cliche to say, but how a sibling treats uh, another sibling with a rare disease or disability or, you know, some other problem, I think you can really recognize that they know no different and that that, you know, relationship is truly just amazing to see as a parent and also just to understand, you know, the you know, his brother and sister, they're able to help bring out the supplies we need when we do his feeding tube. They're able to help bring me his hearing aids when I need them to be brought to me. I think that it's, they're both helpful and they really enjoy doing that for our family. And I'm sure as a parent, you're amazing at engaging your kids and, and really involving them. So I give you a lot of credit. And I also, just from talking with you these couple of times, I know that you are one of the best in terms of, you know, bringing that family unit together. So how old is William right now? William is eight. He turned eight in June. Okay. And is he at school right now? Yeah. So again, when, we, when William was diagnosed, he was, we were told that he likely had a life expectancy of three, that he, you know, our job was to be able to take him home and to take him, take care of him, make him comfortable, keep him happy as long as we can. Um, but now, you know, thinking where we are today, 
I would have just been, I wish I could have told myself, you know, eight years ago where we are today. William is now at school. He's in second grade. He's able to run. He is able to swim. He learned how to swim in the deep end this summer. His favorite things include fishing and swimming and artwork. He loves artwork and swimming and fishing. And those are the things that, you know, are very common for maybe eight-year-old boys. Those are things that eight-year-old boys like to do. Maybe behind the scenes, you don't see that we have to give him his feeding tube prior to swimming, or we have to take out his hearing aids prior to swimming, but really that he's able to do so many things that other eight-year-olds do. And, and that is what, you know, makes, keeps us very happy. I'm sure you take proud mama to a whole new level. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Just seeing him walk into school on the first day of school, a lot of people are proud and happy for their kids, but this is just a moment that we never knew we would be able to have with him. And for him to be able to walk in, meet his teachers, walk, shake their hands and, you know, continue on is something that brings us immense joy. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm so happy for you in, in that feeling. So does he need any extra help or are there any cognitive issues? Yes, I think if you met William, you would recognize that he was not entirely typical compared to his other eight-year-old peers. You know, at school, he has an IEP that supports him in a variety of ways. You know, he needs help with his feeding tubes. He has hearing loss, so he needs to sit closer to the teacher. He also does have, you know, developmental delays that require him to have some modified curriculum and He has an aide that for most of the day that's able to help him, you know, get through the day with his classes. But I had a meeting with his IEP, you know, the school, it was the principal, nurses, psychologists, all of the, you know, speech, physical, occupational therapists prior to school starting. And I told them that, you know, with William, our priorities are always different. Like we... Every day we want him to go to school. We want him to have fun and be happy. If he's able to learn his sight words this year, that would be an added bonus. If he's able to start doing some addition and subtraction, amazing. But that's just not the things that you know are our top priorities for him. It's a really clear way of communicating it. And it's good that you can see what he can accomplish in his realm and not force him to go beyond that, but just be happy for the happiness that he is showing and that he is able to create at school. Exactly. And I think it's about, you know, having a great relationship with his teachers and recognizing them recognizing too, that he, you know, might be able to make an amazing piece of art, but he might not be able to read by the end of the day, but that's okay. He can do the things that make him happy and make him unique. And he's still learning at school. So it's all, we're really happy about that. Does he get frustrated? Like now that, you know, he's getting to the point where you mentioned reading, where the kids in his class are, you know, mostly reading. So does that cause a lot of frustration or can he see why that might not be in his wheelhouse? Yeah, I think that with William, he's a really unique kid. And I think that a lot of people who meet him are like, oh, he's an old soul. And he really (laughs) is. He doesn't get frustrated He's really calm, he's really kind, and he's really matter-of-fact. So he might come home and say, oh, you know, my friend that was sitting next to me was doing a math worksheet, and I was playing with my aide doing, you know, a different math worksheet. And he'll just tell you the, tell you like it is. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't seem to get frustrated. So, no, I, don't, I honestly don't see a whole lot of frustration, and I think that's a really great thing. <laughs> a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. So... How does his condition compare to other kids 
at his age level, are a lot of them able to go to school or is this a real unique situation? I think that what we're learning about with Pearson syndrome is that it's really a spectrum. It's a disease spectrum. And, you know, it's both Pearson syndrome and Kieran Sarah syndrome, you know, they're caused by the same genetic, uh, you know, the mitochondrial deletion. And I think that we're learning that kids can present differently. They can present differently at different ages. And there's just extensive like variability between kids and across kids. And so, you know, it's hard to say how he compares because in some ways we're really happy that he's going to school. Some kids don't go to school. Some kids obviously have passed away before eight years old. But at the same time, Williams had a pretty rough case with Pearson syndrome. He had what's considered a secondary diagnosis of myeloid dysplastic syndrome that we found when he was four years old. And so he um, in addition to having Pearson syndrome, had this related secondary diagnosis that caused him to need a traditional bone marrow transplant. And so he had to have chemo. He had to stay in the hospital for multiple months. And so, you know, there's times when I said thought to myself that his version of Pearson syndrome is significantly worse than other kids. But then there's obviously a lot of times that I'm really grateful for how well he's doing. It's wonderful that you can kind of accept your current situation and recognize that exactly what you said. And I feel the same with my personal experience with mitochondrial disease that when I talk to some people, I feel blessed. And when I talk to other people, it's easy to be, you know, frustrated by the challenges that I face that they don't. But it is it. I feel like every mitochondrial condition does have this wide range of of symptoms and challenges. So there are some cognitive delays. He can hear, but with hearing aids. Yes. Pearson syndrome typically presents, and again, typically, because this is not the case in all in all children, with anemia that needs to be transfusion dependent. So children receive transfusions off and on, typically, again, for the first year to year and a half to two years of their lives. And that William needed transfusions every three weeks until he was 14 months old. And then his bone marrow started making red cells and he didn't need transfusions anymore. Isn't that incredible that the body can change like that? It is incredible. And I, I, you know, I think there's some explanation of a shift in heteroplasmy that maybe the bone marrow can replace. I don't know, but it, it does. It is amazing. I um, mean, it's, that is one of the more consistent things with Pearson syndrome that it does resolve at some point. This again, not for every child. A lot of kids do need transfusions for much longer than two years. But then I think after the transfusion dependency period is over, then, you know, kids can present with a variety of different systemic involvement. And so for William, he had pancreatic insufficiency and he had, you know, some, he has muscle weakness. He's still able to walk. He doesn't require a wheelchair, but he can't walk, you know, as far as his other eight-year-old friends might be able to. He has hearing aids. He got those pretty recently for um, sensorineural hearing loss. And, you know, he has kidney involvement. I think he would be diagnosed with stage two kidney disease, but has been very stable and, you know, something we're monitoring. Um, And I think that that's kind of the trick with Pearson syndrome is that you have to monitor so many different systems. So he sees a cardiologist every six months to have his heart checked. Um, A lot of the kids, by the time they're nine or 10 years old or 11, are starting to get pacemakers. And so that's something that's been on our radar since he was six months old and he gets checked every six months. Um, and he'll be due again for a visit in December. Wow. You know, one of the things that me and you have talked at length about is how many specialists he does go to. 
you mentioned 14 specialists that he regularly sees. Yes. <laughs> that could make your head spin. It, it does. I mean, I think it's both challenging and amazing. So I think that, you know, we have all of his specialists that we've been going to, most of them since he was a baby. Our primary, uh, you know, center of excellence is the Cleveland Clinic. And he has, you know, his team there that we really consider the leaders of his care. And we are, I am very comfortable sending a my chart message and saying, hey, this is going on. What is the plan? You know, it's, amazing that the doctors are able to work together if there's like a multi or a cross systemic problem going on. And so I think that despite sounding very scary, it's so comforting to know that we have those doctors that are going to be very responsive to anything that we need. If William is ever hospitalized, those are the people that we call and those are the people that know William the best and his baseline and, and also just know the disease the best so they can, you know, provide the optimal recommendations. It sounds like you really have peace of mind with the physicians you're working with. And they're not local to you, correct? Correct. They are not local. We make the trip every six months. <laughs> oh my gosh. You must know the Cleveland area well, right? <laughs> we do. We have our favorite, you know, we get our <laughs> Mally's chocolate and our favorite little Italy sandwiches. So we we know, we know where to go. <laughs> It's amazing that you can advocate for your son in so many different ways at school and within his physician team and make sure that you're finding the best of the best. But how do you stay organized? What advice can you give to other parents? That's a really good question. You know, I am, in, again, in year eight of this. And so I think that I remember back to year one or year 0.5 in the first six months and it was hard. It was a lot of documentation, a lot of note taking, a lot of really stressful times just trying to learn how to stay organized. Um, I think that now I we've gotten into a routine. We know what we need to keep track of. We know, you know, how we need to coordinate with his physicians, how to communicate with them. And so I think that really it's just a learning process from the time that he's been born. This has been how it has always been with William and how we've needed to communicate and keep track of all of his appointments and clinic and all of that. But I will say that there are times that are really hard. And I think that, you know, again, like you mentioned, we have moved a lot. And so to try to coordinate care, even local care for him is really challenging. And I'll give an example that, you know, William had his vaccines when he was born after he was no longer neutropenic. And we have moved around multiple times. And during those moves, he also had a bone marrow transplant, which wipes away all of your previous vaccines. So he had to get all of his repeated vaccines. And some of the doctors at different, you know, pediatricians just really had a hard time understanding that we were repeating his vaccines, why we were doing it, why he had vaccine records in seven different places across the country. Um, and that was just, you know, me carrying around a form that I had every doctor sign after they did a vaccine so I could keep track. And then also, obviously, all of the internal medical records. But it was just, you know, things like that, that we've had to do because of our life and also for what William needs. Wow. But I, that is really good advice, especially having the doctor sign right there. It just gives you an extra layer of protection in terms of your knowledge moving forward, because it's a lot to remember. You work full time, you have three kids, and now you've also started this wonderful foundation. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. We started the foundation couple weeks after William was diagnosed. And I think it was, you know, the immediate realization that when you Google Pearson syndrome, that there is the first thing you read is that there is no treatment, no cure. 
And I think that the second thing that we were really finding out very quickly was that there was not research focused on Pearson syndrome because there was not funding focused on Pearson syndrome. And so we needed to, that was kind of what we felt like we absolutely had to do was have a start a foundation that focused exclusively on this very rare mitochondrial DNA deletion disorder. Initially started fundraising. It was all grassroots fundraising from friends and family. And our primary goal was to get basic science, translational basic science off the ground and funded some labs, academic labs at different institutions around the world. And then, you know, we had done that for a few years. And in 2019, we applied and successfully was awarded a Chan Zuckerberg Initiative Rare is One grant. And that really helped us transform our purpose and our goals to not just fund, you know, academic institutions and, and research, but to think beyond what as an organization we can be doing to help families currently with children with either Pearson syndrome or KSS. And so, you know, after we received that award, we had our, we were tasked with starting a single large scale mitochondrial DNA deletion disorder research network. And so we thought about it in a variety of different ways, but, you know, our primary projects were to start this registry, um, which is called the Champ Foundation Registry, and also to fund a biorepository at Boston Children's Hospital, and also to fund a multi-site natural history study to better understand, um, you know, the trajectory of these disorders. Wow. You've done a lot. And I mean, really, we're talking in less than eight years. You've accomplished all of this. So with this grant and the registry that you created, how many people do you currently have on the registry now? We have over 100. I would like to say 100, about 110 people on the registry right now. And have you created an opportunity for you all to meet or are there you know, connections through online forums? So prior to William's diagnosis, there was an online Pearson Syndrome family Facebook group. And that you know was our first kind of understanding that parents are, especially with these very ultra rare diseases, parents are and caregivers are the experts and parents know kind of what information is important to share with other parents. They need to share, you know, very, not just, you know, emotional support and, and guidance, but also very important clinical care information that might be useful to families. And so the Facebook group existed. And I think that since, you know, the, our grant and since the registry, um, there have been both formal and informal opportunities for families to meet. So informal opportunities, you know, families go to our natural history study, either the Cleveland Clinic or at CHOP. And oftentimes families go and have their clinical care appointments at the same time as other families. You know, we've met online, we've met on Facebook, and people like to see each other in person. Um, so there's been opportunities for families to meet in person at some of these just clinic visits. But also we've hosted multiple conferences and our most recent conference over July of last year invited families to join. And we had, I think we had 10 children with Pearson syndrome or KSS. And I think there was about 20 families who were able to join. And that was really an amazing experience to have all of those kids in the same room, to be able to meet each other and also to meet the researchers who are you know, trying to understand this disease and try to come up with treatments and cures, but also for their clinicians to see multiple kids in the same room at the same time. What was that like from your son's perspective? Oh, he had a blast. I mean, I think that he recognized that it was a big party that, you know, <laughs> we had been planning forever. We had the first night was our kickoff and we hosted it at the Philadelphia Zoo. 
And so it was really, it felt like a party. There was an ice cream social bar, there was music, there were drinks. It was really like a fun event that people could interact and meet each other um, in ways that is really rare for the rare disease world. It's kind of a sad place to be in, but this was a fun opportunity. And I'll just, you know, I think about him running around the tables and chairs underneath the tent at the Philadelphia Zoo with his new friends that also have Pearson syndrome. And also interacting with all of the siblings together. It was really, it was really a important and impactful event. Impactful for sure. I do think that those opportunities are so few and far between. When I find someone that has my condition, I feel like I could talk to them for 24 hours straight because there's so much to say or questions, you, you know, you want to compare and you want to ask questions. And I, I imagine that those connections were really easy for you and, and your family to make with these other families. Absolutely. I think it was great to, you know, interact with both the kids and the parents. And, you know, we thought of this event, not just as again, like a feel good, happy event, but we wanted people to come and see that learn about the research that was happening, learn, meet the researchers. And also like, for example, we hosted a research opportunity. So families in the back of the conference room, children could donate a, a sample that, you know, we had multiple outcomes that we were looking at. Families could fill out questionnaires um, and we're writing up the re results right now from a single day research event that, you know, the opportunity to bring a lot of these kids together at the same time doesn't exist very often. And so we are always thinking about ways that we can move research forward. We can understand the disease better, um, you know, hopefully try to pinpoint some outcomes that could be used for clinical trials. So this was, and everybody, everybody that came participated, which I think is another really important thing that these rare disease families are very motivated to participate in research that can help them and their families. That's incredible. It's wonderful to hear. I mean, the more research we can get and the more participation from any of us with any form of mitochondrial disease will benefit the whole. Right. So hearing that these families have this drive to do it is really key. And so do you feel like you've connected with them more after the conference, you know, now that you're back in your daily lives? I think that, you know, I had a relationship and I think that the families have a relationship with each other pretty much as soon as they join the group, the Facebook group, as soon as they're seeing other families and you Facebook friend or, you know, you meet each other online. Um, so I would say that really the relationship was already there. We have this very unique, very unfortunate life event in common. And I think that brings you close together. And then obviously seeing each other in person really was great. But I think that most of these families and most of the parents I feel very close with and that we, that's continued even after the conference. That's incredible. So what do you hope to see for the foundation in the next couple of years? That's a great question. That's a really great question. I think that our goal in the next few years is to really use the registry data that we've you know, families have filled out, I would say, upwards of 20 surveys. Um, some of them were initial baseline surveys about specific, you know, systems involved. And now we've done a lot of repeated measure surveys. And I think we want to use this data to show, you know, the FDA, to show other agencies that we are learning more about the outcomes and that now we want clinical trials to focus on our disease because we understand that, you know, what is expected with, with Pearson syndrome or KSS and that these are really the best, you know, rare disorders to be able to target for clinical trials. 
have Pearson and KSS been a part of any past research trial or, or have there been none available to this group? There is one trial out of Israel at the Sheba Medical Center that has recruited children with Pearson syndrome. That trial was a phase one, phase two trial that included enrollment a couple years ago. And I'm, under, I'm understanding that they are starting a new trial with the same, with similar technology over the next few weeks, which is really exciting. Oh, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. It's very exciting. Huh. So what can a family who has a child with KSS or Pearson do to get involved in your foundation? What would be the first steps? Yeah, so we have a document that families, you know, we have lots of families that reach out to us and say, we're walking out of our son's or daughter's hospital appointment right now. We just got this diagnosis. We Googled it and you're the first thing that came up. And so, you know, I can very much remember those first few days, how stressful and confusing they are. And so we created a document um, in collaboration with researchers and physicians at CHOP and the Cleveland Clinic to, you know, describe a step-by-step what should be done after you're newly diagnosed with Pearson syndrome. And the, you know, suggestions range from setting up a multi-specialist court team, have a coordinating physician. And then, you know, we also recommend that families get involved with the CHAMP Foundation or get involved in research. And there's ways to do that. You can get involved. You can participate in the natural history study. You can participate in the CHAMP Foundation registry. And I also tell people that with our natural history study, we, we as in the CHAMP Foundation, can cover families' travel costs. We can cover their flights and their hotels to be able to travel to either Cleveland or Philadelphia to be able to participate in this study because we know that that's a barrier for some families. And so one of the goals and objectives of our organization is to help those types of families be able to still participate and contribute. That's incredible. I I think someone like you who has gone through it and has this strength and drive to help see a different future, you're the perfect person to help other families that are now in what were your shoes several years ago. So it must feel very rewarding to help these newly diagnosed families. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that we've heard some feedback from families that they're very grateful to be able to communicate with other families, to be able to communicate with the foundation. I think that it's definitely like I have had phone calls at nine o'clock at night on a Friday that say, you know, our son is sick. What what should we do? And I have to remind families that I am not a doctor. I don't know. You know, I'm not a clinician, but I, I do have experience with my own son. And I also have experience understanding, you know, the trajectory with other kids. And so, of course, I recommend that they see and ask their own doctor. But it is it is an interesting position to be in both like the, you know, the research world and also just the very personal family world of how, you know, these disorders affect families and children. I mean, you're clearly, this is proof that you've clearly turned into like a a mentor or a, you know, a leader in this community. And that's a job well done from you. So I'm sure all of these families appreciate all of the hard work that you've put into this. And I went through the checklist myself and I mean, really anyone with a rare disease or specifically maybe mitochondrial disease could benefit from a lot of the steps on that checklist. I mean, it is, it's really daunting whether you get the diagnosis as a baby or a a bit older than that of any type of rare disease. And to be able to have a clear, concise list of where to start and how to start navigating this is essential. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that, you know, this is not a position that I would have seen myself in a decade ago. This is not what I would have 
chosen to do, but this is something that needed to happen. And so I think that this is, you know, we are happy to be able to be doing work with the Champ Foundation. We recognize that it's very important. And obviously our ultimate goal is very clear to be able to help the kids with Pearson syndrome and Kieran Sarah syndrome right now today. I mean, you're teaching your children and the other families in this community that when there is a need, you go for it. And you you have to make a difference. And if you can make a difference, you should. And if you can make progress and you clearly have, you know, you've proven to be very successful in what you've done. And I am sure your community is so appreciative. So Elizabeth, if if families want to get in touch with you, what would you suggest? I would be really happy for anybody to get in touch with me who's interested in learning more about the CHAMP Foundation or about Pearson Syndrome and the work we've been doing. So they can, you know, go to thechampfoundation.org or they can email me at elizabeth.reynolds at thechampfoundation.org. And I'd be really happy to talk with anybody who's interested. Thank you for your willingness to take those emails. So we'll have that in the show notes so you don't have to memorize it. But thank you for for sharing this information and for being so willing to be open to our community. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for letting me talk about the foundation. I always have to say thank you to the families who are participating in our research, who are participating with the work that we're doing, who are helping fundraise. I think that we have a very clear mission. We have a very clear goal and there's still work to be done, but it's really great when we have a lot of support in our corner for from families who are able to help us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for all of the work that you've done in the community. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. I encourage you to browse other Energy in Action podcast episodes. I'm so inspired by the resilience of those in previous episodes and I know you will be too. 